So as I mentioned earlier, um, we've been in this, for those of you that are here for the first or second time, all summer long we've kind of been exploring Luke. The backstory is we've kind of challenged everyone in our community to get involved in God's word together, to dive into the same pieces of text, to begin looking through it. We started a, a study that we just sort of challenged everybody to that would really push us into spending time in prayer and having quiet time, and then we'd come on Sundays and open some of those passages together, and some people it's worked great for and some haven't, but the point is, is that we've been trying to do that, and so each Sunday I just sort of pick one of those topics and one of those pieces in the book of Luke, and we just kind of walk through it, so it's kind of been a, a journey through the highlights, if you will, of Luke, and uh, so they're the, the big kind of grand stories, and, and sometimes they've moved us into different categories like they're going to do this, like it's going to do this morning, but each week I've tried to take a word and use it as an anchor. Point. We've talked about things like salvation and gospel and hope and surrender and prayer and things along those lines. And this morning we're going to be exploring really two pieces of text. The study out of the book of Luke, chapter 22, is going to push us into John 13 because I want to show you a little kind of a, a little bit broader picture of what's unfolding in that chapter. But we're going to do it under the kind of banner with the anchor point of the idea of love. Now, sort of, not that little picture of romantic, huggy-dove, you know, kind of huggy love and kissy love, but like, really God's sort of extravagant love for us, and, and what that costs us, and what that should mean to us. Because I've really been kind of, for the past week or month, or a couple of uh, weeks and a month, I've been really confronted with this idea of biblical love. Like, deep, really, God loves me in this sort of deep way, and what does that mean to me? And how should that affect me? How should that change me, challenge me, push me, equip me, whatever? kind of love and it's one of those things where I think we all as followers of Christ take this understanding of God is love and God calls us to love and his love is sacrificial and all those kind of things and we file it away with the things that we think we know and have a handle on and very rarely do we sort of pull it out and re-examine it and ask ourselves what does that mean to me and what does it cost me we kind of throw the idea of love around even in our Christian culture with a sort of kind of certain callousness that just sort of uses the word as a throwaway on some levels. And so when we really begin to understand it and explain it, I, I think that it's deeply, deeply convicting. And what we're going to see this morning in Luke chapter 22, it's going to throw us into John 13, is what I think to be one of the most unsettling passages in all of Scripture. And I, there's a couple of those, but this is one of them. One of the most unsettling passages in all of Scripture. One that should disturb us to the core on some level and turn our understandings and definitions of love, biblical love, costly love upside down so if you've got your bible i want you to open to luke chapter 22 we'll be in uh, verses 7 through a few down there and then we're going to kind of spring into john 13 so if you're one of those people that gets anxious where you don't know where i'm going you can put your finger in both places right that was my dad my dad used to sit in church and he'd go through the whole bulletin we went to a church where they give you a, a fancy bulletin and, and he'd get all the hymns marked and all the bible places marked because he didn't like to be surprised right this is the same guy that get up every morning and read the obituaries to make sure he wasn't dead so it shouldn't surprise you. So that was the deal. So anyway, um, for those of you that are in that category, like uh, you, you may want to know where we're going. So Luke chapter 22, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here. I thank you for the new faces that you brought, for the faces of this community. I thank you, God, that you continue to meet us right where we are. That whatever we've got going on, whatever kind of baggage, issues, struggles, whatever it is, God, you meet us in the middle of that. And I'm continually amazed by that part of your nature and character that, God, um, you meet us in the middle of our, our just life, our struggles, our stuff. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to prepare you, to teach you, to speak to you something. Just ask God to move in you this morning.
Pray for someone around you, even if you don't know their name or have never seen them before. Or maybe it's your spouse of 30 years. Just pray for someone. Be in the habit of praying for other people that God would move in them, draw them to himself. God, I pray that you would take the um, familiar this morning, the familiar text that we're going to spend time in, and you would do the unfamiliar with them. Lord, that you would do something powerful and radical, that you would speak to each of our needs and our hearts, that you might turn some of our definitions upside down, challenging us to think and, and live in a way that would, um, that would really reflect your love, that would encounter your love, that would move us. Lord, we give you all glory and honor. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take it lightly, so teach our hearts. Uh, reveal truth to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 22, verse 7, because I want to use this as a springboard, because what we're going to see is that this is one of the most infamous nights in all of human history, right? This is the night that Jesus will be betrayed and handed over and abandoned. That he will be put before a council, ultimately sentenced the next day, crucified. And all that we know to be our Christian faith is tied up in these moments. But this is the night that all that begins to unfold. The night in which he spent time with those that he loved dearly, that they would all run from him. And one of them would, have, would betray him, and the other one would deny him. And so this night holds a lot of power, if you will, in terms of our Christian story. And I want to show you that by way of Luke 22, and then I want to introduce you to something that's a little bit of a lesser-known event that takes place that night that I think turns everything upside down. So this is Luke chapter 22. Let's start in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. And he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make your preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until... It finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of it again till the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, he had, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So incredibly important piece of our Christian story and understanding, right? This is... The moment in which Jesus basically gives the sacrament of communion. This is the moment that we're familiar with that Paul refers to in his letter to the Corinthians. It's the one that the Gospels use as that sort of anchor point that we would be able to hold on to what's about to unfold. Now it's fascinating because the disciples have no idea what this means, right? I mean, they're gathered with Jesus. They're yet to even really understand that Jesus was about to be arrested, betrayed, crucified, certainly not knowing he was raised from the dead, like all those things. We have the luxury of having 2,000 years of hindsight into and a, a whirlwind of movement in our Christian lives. But these 12 folks are sitting there, and Jesus is using this moment to not only give them an anchor point and a foreshadow of what will happen, 
but to basically give them that moment of unity that would unite believers from space and time for thousands of years to come. That we would still celebrate Jesus is unfolding and basically giving the disciples so that we could celebrate that and be anchored to what's about to happen. So it's an incredibly powerful night. And, and we could do a lot with communion. I could unpack all the sort of theological implications of what different traditions believe. And we could use words like transubstantiation and talk about all those things. But I don't want to get there today. What I want you to see is that there's something magnificent that's happening on this evening. Now, communion itself, right, comes from the Greek word koinonia, which just means fellowship. So the word communion is really designed about kind of around this idea of fellowship around this unbelievable event that is about to take place. The Lord's Supper, which sometimes people refer to it as, is simply that. The Passover meal was the actual meal, but this moment that Jesus took normal elements, bread and wine, and used them as an anchor for the disciples to hold on to and pass on and celebrate and remember and be united in worship uh, is really the Lord's Supper. For some of you with like higher church backgrounds, Episcopalians, maybe some Lutherans, Catholics, you may use the word Eucharist, right, which is just a really fancy word, but it comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which just means to give thanks. So the idea just is built around Jesus saying he took the bread and he gave thanks, and after that he took the cup and he gave thanks. It was a thankful moment. All those words mean exactly the same thing. It points to this moment before the disciples even really understood where Jesus sat with them and he said, something incredible is about to happen. And not incredible as in terms of wonderful, but incredible in ter- as in terms of almost unexplainable. And so I'm going to give you a reference point that you will basically always be able to hold on to. And this incredible night of magnificent wonder and awfulness and abandonment and kind of betrayal is going to culminate in a point of worship that you'll be able to hold on to for the rest of your lives and pass on to those that come after you. Now, I say all those sort of things about communion because I want you to understand the power that is unfolding on this night and the incredible things that are happening. But John paints this little bit of a different picture. Same story, but he adds a layer to it, and I don't want us to miss it. Because what John adds in is what he says, or what Jesus basically says, and John records, as being the very demonstration, the full extent of Jesus' love. And it didn't come on the cross. And it didn't come through the resurrection. It came several hours before all those events unfold. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip it over to John 13. And we're going to jump in here and we're going to explore something a little bit different on that evening so john 13 chapter 1 so it was just before the passover feast jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the father having loved his own who were in the world he now showed them the full extent of his love the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted judas iscariot the son of simon to betray jesus Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then... Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So John records a little bit more depth to this unfolding of this Passover meal. 
just before the meal was being served, as it was almost going around, Jesus kind of engages in this sort of lesser-known movement on that very night that he was betrayed, but one that I think is incredibly disturbing, and if we really think about it, it shouldn't sit well with you. It should make you feel uncomfortable, because it certainly makes me feel uncomfortable when I think about all that is unfolding. So we've got this magnificent night by which Jesus was giving this tool to the disciples, a proclamation, a foreshadow of all that was going to unfold, something that we would be able to hold on to, this glorious movement that would be used as worship to celebrate one of the greatest kind of tragedies in all of human history that God would use for his incredible glory, drawing us to himself, death and crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ, right? We've got that moment. But right before that moment, Jesus says that he's about to show them the full extent of of his love. Now this event is one we're familiar with, right? We talk about foot washing all the time. In fact, it's got some cultural carryover. Even in our culture today, the idea of foot washing has to do with the idea of serving, right? So we kind of get it, but the reference is somewhat lost on us because it's not something that we engage in. It's not part of our culture and life. But foot washing, of course, as you know, was a nasty, nasty thing because people walked around without fancy shoes, most of the time barefoot, um, if they had any kind of means, they had sandals, right? And it's kind of, we imagine Jesus wearing sandals and the disciples wearing sandals. But feet were nasty. A lot of us know that already. If you've got middle schoolers, I haven't won. Their feet are just disgusting, right? Well, imagine walking around in the dirt and the manure and the filth. There was no sanitary system. There were no sewers that ran. People would throw things into the street. When you used the restroom, collected those things, they would pitch it outside. Used cooking water, used food, everything would just get thrown out. It wasn't much later until the Romans entered the picture that sanitary systems began to really kind of play a prominent role in history. But in those days, it was really pitch the bucket kind of deal. So you would walk through, and the disciples did a lot of walking through miles and miles of basically garbage all the time. Livestock things, feet were gross. When you went into somebody's house to dine, you didn't sit at a table. It wasn't like you had an eight-foot-long table and you had these banquet chairs. The way things were is that they were either laid out on the floor on a rug, or there was a table that was about six inches off the ground and pillows around and you would recline. Meals were shared moments of family and history. They weren't serving the purpose of necessarily nourishing your body. They were engagement in life together. And the Passover meal was an incredibly special meal in the life of Israel. It was one they celebrated God's protection, provision, and deliverance from the hand of the Egyptians. And when they celebrated it, they did it really well and with great meaning and importance. And so they would gather and they would recline. Pillows laid on the ground. People gathering around food. So your feet, when you entered someone's house and you were going to share a meal, had to be clean because they weren't four feet below you dangling under a table. They were right there on the table, on the rug, with you. You were on the floor with your feet. And so when you entered someone's house, especially to eat, they would have someone there that would wash your feet. Usually a servant or usually someone of a lower stature than the owner of the home. And they would come in and they would, it wasn't symbolic. It wasn't like, oh, hey, well, you're welcome. Let me wash your feet so you know that I'll serve you. It was literally a scrubbing of the manure off the bottom of your feet so that you could eat and be clean. That was the purpose. It was a dirty job. It certainly wasn't a job for someone like Jesus, right? I mean, it was just, it's just unbelievable. So Jesus stands up as the food is being served, right? And he begins to wash the disciples' feet, removes his clothes, right? 
um, puts on a towel around his waist and he begins to wash all of their feet, every single one of them. Now, if you really pay attention to the story, this should deeply disturb you. I mean, it, it really, at the core, should disturb you. Because it's not the picture of sacrificial love that we talk about on Easter, where Jesus so loved the world, John, or, uh, Romans 5, 8, that, he, that while we were still sinners, he gave his life for us, and Jesus loved us enough to do this incredible thing where he died on the cross, and that is everything that our Christian faith is hung on. And I, I agree with that 100%. But this is not that picture. This is the God of the universe. The God that breathed life into your very lungs. The God that gives you air. The God that that basically created the stars and the skies. The magnificent God stooping down, scrubbing the garbage between the toes of a bunch of ragtag tax collectors, fishermen, uneducated people that would abandon him, run from him, betray him, and deny him on that very night. And Jesus already knew it. Yet he lays on the floor with these guys, scrubbing the manure from between their toes. The guys that God had breathed life into their very lungs. All of their sin and garbage exposed. Jesus knowing full well that they would betray him, abandon him, and that Peter himself would deny him three times. And he scrubs their feet. Now I don't know about you, but my picture of worshiping God, right? If all of my sin is exposed... All the things that I've done wrong, all the things that we try and hide, all the things we wish no one knew that we know only God knows. And the God of the universe stands or lays before me in all of my sin and all of my awfulness and all of my garbage and he scrubs my feet. That picture doesn't work for me. What works for me is me laying at his feet saying, God, I am unworthy. As John the Baptist says, the sandals of Jesus, he wasn't even worthy to untie. What works for me is me saying, God, I am a broken disaster. Let me lay at your feet. Let me ask for forgiveness. Let me beg for mercy. That is my picture. What doesn't work for me is the reverse. That the God that gave me life, that gives me freedom, The God that forgives my sin every moment of my life when I ignore him and deny him, yet continues to scrub that part of my life away. It's disturbing. And it's not pretty. And it's not sexy. And it's not one of those things that we look at and we say, oh, hey, in a lighthearted way, this is really cool. It should rock our heartbeat to the core that this is what this picture looks like. Now, here's what's fascinating about this to me is that John puts it this way. Having loved his own, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. My understanding of the full extent of, of God's love happens on that hill some few days or nights later. My understanding is what takes place three days later when, when the rocks kind of explode and, and the angels appear and white light shines around and we sing the hallelujah chorus at Easter and God is glorified. That is the full extent of the love of God that I understand. But what John says is the full extent doesn't take place in this crowning glorious moment. The full extent of Jesus' love takes place behind closed doors in a borrowed house, scrubbing the garbage off of 12 guys that would abandon, betray, and run. If you continue down the trajectory of this story this night, if we kept reading, what we discover is as soon as Judas gets up and leaves... An angry mob comes and they arrest Jesus. Every single disciple runs. And Jesus is left there alone. A couple hours later, we have the denial of Peter, which we're going to look at next week. Three times denies an earshot of Jesus. These are the guys that Jesus scrubs. 
and they remind me of myself. I'm an abandoner. I'm a betrayer, right? And yet God loves me in this full extent this way. And I don't know what to do with it. Because I don't feel that lovable. I don't feel that worthy. I don't feel like that's how this should play out. But the reality is this is the full extent of the love of God. But what's really amazing about all this is what happens at the end of this chapter. This is kind of where I spend the last few moments. So in verse 13, 34, after Jesus has sort of done this, he looks at the disciples and he says this, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. So Jesus goes to this whole foot washing thing, right? He goes to this whole thing. They talk about it quite a bit. He tells them what's happening. This communion moment happens. And then he looks at all these guys, these 12 folks. Actually, at that point in time, 11, because Judas had got up and he had left after all this. And he says, a new command I'm giving you. Right now, in this moment, I'm giving you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, how you love one another, all men will know you are my disciples. Now here's what I find pretty amazing about this picture, is that Jesus is talking to the 12 disciples. He's not giving a sermon on the mount to thousands. He's not feeding 5,000 and doing this sort of remarkable thing where he gathers all people and he says, just love each other. He's looking at 12. And he's saying, how you love each other will matter. And I think there's two things in here that I really want you to see, and kind of the picture of how Jesus loves and how we're called to love in that reflection, right? And, and the first is that he sort of really see this picture of love without condition. When Jesus calls these disciples, they're broken and busted and messed up and bruised, and they are tax collectors and sinners, and they're, they're fishermen, and they're just uneducated people, and yet Jesus calls them without asking about their family tree or history or what they've done wrong or where they're from or what grade they completed. He just speaks words of life and they follow him. And then all along the way, Jesus deals with and interacts with their sin, their, their arguments, their indecision, their abandoning. They, he deals with the argument they have over who's going to be the best in all of heaven when they get there. I mean, Jesus deals with all of that in the middle of their life and he loves them without condition. But the most amazing part of this is that when Jesus goes down the line of people that he's washing feet, if you read the story, Judas had not left yet. He goes down the line of disciples, and he washes all of their feet, even the feet of the guy that was going to, in a matter of moments, get up, sell him out, have this angry mob come, lead to the most horrific public execution in all of history, and Jesus washes his feet, and Jesus knew it. In fact, he says, if you look in there, he says to, to uh, Judas, go ahead, you can go now. I find this incredible. I find it amazing that, that Jesus, without condition, and even in all of Judas's disaster, the God of the universe still sacrificially, without condition, scrubs his feet. It would have been really nice in my sort of cosmic picture for Jesus to get to him and be like, hey, this isn't going to work for you, man. Like, just go. But he doesn't. The God that breathed life into Judas' lungs is the one that washed his feet before he betrayed him. I don't understand that kind of love. But it's without condition. The second thing we see is that it's deeply sacrificial. Right? I mean, just Jesus spending time with this band of disciples was a social stigma. Everywhere he went, people accused him of being with these 
tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and people. And everywhere he went, he was ridiculed just for the people he spent time with. His life was a very sacrifice. Not only do we see that poured out on the cross, but we see it with how he engaged in people. The religious part of the world couldn't stand it. Yet Jesus loved without condition and with this deep sacrifice. Now, I know it's easy for us to say, yeah, well, we know that. We get that. Jesus loved sacrificially. He loved without condition. But what he says to the disciples is this. This command I give you, right? New one. Love one another as I've loved you. So he said, I've loved you this way, without condition. I scrubbed your feet. I demonstrated to you what this looks like. And I loved you with deep sacrifice. And this is how you're called to love one another. Now, what's amazing about, and I wrap all this up by saying this. We think this is how we're called to love the world. The church will tell you, and we will preach about it, and we will talk about it, that we are called to go out there and use this. Love one another as I've loved you, all men and women disciples, et cetera, et cetera, out there. That we're called to go and serve with the city rescue mission and love those people that are hard to love. Or we're called to love Aunt Wanda, even when she's crazy at Thanksgiving. That we're called to love the unlovable, the widow, the broken, the hurt. But that's not even what Jesus is saying. If you really want to read it in context, he looks at 12 guys and he says, listen, love each other as I've loved you. Everyone will know you're my disciple by how you love each other. What he's basically saying is that how the community of believers, followers of Christ, love each other matters. It's the greatest evangelistic tool that the church has ever been given. It's not how well you can recite the four spiritual laws. It's not how great you can use the Evangel Cube or whatever method it is. It's not how great you can go down and serve on the day before Christmas so you feel a little bit better about the money you spend on Christmas presents. It's not about loving those that are hard. It's about being engaged in the life of a community, a church community, and loving each other in such a way that the world looks at us and says, what in the world is going on there? The greatest evangelistic tool the church has is not the t-shirts it wears, not the fall kickoffs where we hire some big band to come in, and not the Easter Sundays where we put on where, you know, Jesus flies through the roof or whatever, and we have 7,000 trumpets. The greatest evangelistic tool the church has is how we love each other and how you love the person on your right and on your left. And all of their broken, betraying, abandoning, running, hiding, denying kind of ways. Because the, the, the world believes that churches are filled with hypocrites and judgmental people. And they believe that because they're right. The church is called to think and love differently. Our entire mission as a church, right, our mission statement is that we exist to love much and love well. As we take the gospel to the one and to the city and to the world. The idea being is that we can't take the gospel anywhere until we love much and well in this place. Taking the gospel is an afterthought to how we love. God doesn't need us to do that. If we don't love much and love well, do we really even understand the gospel? Is the question. What we see here is the full extent of the love of God who calls us to engage that way. And it doesn't mean we don't love people. It means it begins with how we engage with each other. And it should change the way that we see love, period. It should flip it upside down. It should change the way you see your neighbor, your boss, your coworker, your teacher, your whatever. Your spouse you should flip it upside down because if Jesus can scrub the manure between the toes of the guy that would betray him, deny him, and run from him, and guess what? That person is you. He can do that for you and will do that for you. And how do we look at the person on our right and say, no? Love gets turned upside down when we begin to see how it was played out and the full extent of which Jesus poured it out.
we close our time of worship, what I want you to think about is, God, how does this change my understanding of the church? How does this change my understanding of you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments just to gather here, uh, for the stories that are somewhat familiar and for the new ways you may use them to push and challenge and affect our hearts. God, I confess that I feel incredibly unlovable at so many times in my life, yet you love me anyway. I confess that I am a betrayer and abandoner and denier, and yet you love me anyway. And God, this room is filled with the same people. We're filled with people that turn our backs on you, on each other. We're, turned with, we're filled with people that run, that flee. Some of us even here this morning, our, our hearts are at, full, at a full sprint away from you. We're petrified. Yet, God, you, your love is extravagant, and it's without condition, and it's with deep sacrifice. God, help us as a church, both in this little community that we have and in the bigger community of believers, to not just be reflections of your love, but to be the very embodiment of your love. God, if you dwell in us, that we don't reflect you, we are the embodiment of who you are. And so, God, pour through us. Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray, God, that you would be glorified. There may be moments of confession and honesty poured out in our song. So, God, hear our cry. Thank you for showing us the full extent of your love that not only took place on that cross, but every moment that led up to it. Father, you are the Redeemer, and we are unworthy, but we are grateful. Let's stand together and close our time.